And as you're being seated, if you would please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will be in verses 8 through 11 today in our series through the Ten Commandments. Today we're looking at commandment number four. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask our Lord's blessing on this text we have today. Oh, Jesus, I thank you so much for this text that you've given to us, and I pray that this would be a blessing as we examine it and see your will for our lives. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this commandment, the fourth commandment, is probably one of the most debated commandments in our church today. Not just by saying our church, I'm talking about the wider body of Christ, as there are many different approaches to what this is. And mostly, these questions revolve around what are we allowed to do and what are we not allowed to do. A lot of times we're looking for some sort of list as to these are the things that we're supposed to do on the Sabbath day, this is what we are not supposed to do. Some would say this is still in effect today. In fact, one denomination has made their flagship theology over the fact that this is, in fact, still practiced on Saturday, on the seventh day. There are others that would say, no, 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 this has been moved here to Sunday, but all of the restrictions that we see here put still endure today. Indeed, that is the opposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we saw and we recited earlier today. And there are others that would say, nope, this doesn't apply at all. In fact, this has been, this is the one commandment that has pointed to Christ. And when Christ died and did all of the work, now we enter into his rest and this command no longer applies. So with such a wide spectrum of belief about this Sabbath, how are we supposed to untangle this? Are we looking for lists? Are we looking for no difference at all? What are we to see? I think looking for a list misses the point, and I'll tip my hand early. But I don't think that this commandment is the only one that has disappeared. I don't think this is something that has vanished, and we now today only have nine commandments instead of ten. So how do we find this balance? Well, I hope that we'll be able to find that as we look in our passage today. As always, I have two points for us to consider, as you can see those in the back of your prayer guide tucked into the bulletin there. 
The first point is that we are freed, and I use that word purposefully. We are freed to work and to rest, point number one. And point number two is that we are freed to worship. We are freed to worship. So we're going to take a look at this command today. So first, we are free to work and rest. And note that I mentioned that we are freed to work. This is something that, was, that we often miss. Indeed, I didn't notice until my deeper study of it this week, that there are actually two commands here, and that we are not only to rest, but we are also supposed to work. Look what it says here in verse 9. We'll come back to verse 8 in a second. Verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. This is something where we are called to work diligently. Now, does this mean that we have to work all day, every day at our jobs here in the six days? No, but what this is saying is that we are given six days in order to do what we need to do. It implies there are things for us to do. Indeed, uh, uh, Riken had, had, had put it, we are God's people and God is a worker. Indeed, that's what we see in the first account in Genesis. What is God doing? He's at work. He is creating this planet. When Adam and Eve were placed into the garden, they were placed in there to work and do. Work is not a result of the curse, as some might think. We were not living in some idyllic world where Adam and Eve sat back and fished all day. But this was something where they were to cultivate the world that was around them. Work is not a curse, but is indeed a good thing, not a result of sin because God himself is involved in it. In fact, later on in one of the passages about the Sabbath, I think it's in John 5 or 6, where Jesus says that that my father is at work, and so am I. So there is this call for us to work, but there is also a call here in verse 8, which is to rest that we are to stop. And the organizing principle is this Sabbath day. You can see everything about this commandment is built around this one day. Work diligently this six days. Why? Because you have a day that is meant to be set apart, a day that is meant for rest. In fact, that's what the word Sabbath means. It means to stop, cease, to rest. Indeed, this is God's own pattern. Look with me into Genesis chapter 2, because this is where the Scripture of Exodus 20 is pointing back to. We can see Scripture interpreting Scripture, Exodus as a commentary on Genesis, unfolding more of these implications from earlier texts. It says here at, in, back in Exodus 20, It points back to this in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the earth and sea and all that is in them and rested. That's what we see here back in Genesis 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, does that mean that God rested because he was tired? No. 
God did not rest because he had put out so much effort that he just had to take a breather and sit down for a day. This is not the case. Here, God is providing a pattern. He is showing us how we are supposed to approach our own lives. And that's what we have here in Exodus chapter 20. This command is grounded here in creation. But this is not the only concept that God grounds this commandment in. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here we actually see that there is the commandments are listed again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, we've not looked at the commandments here because in Deuteronomy 5, up to this point, they've all been worded the same, or with any really one or two words minor difference. But this is the first time where we see a difference in how this particular commandment is talked about. Note, if we keep your finger in Exodus 20, because we're going to be going back and forth from from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Note that in Exodus 20, it says to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. That doesn't just mean, oh, yes, you know, Saturday exists. It means to remember and to act on this information. We are resting on the seventh day because God rested on the seventh day. But look what it goes in here in Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 12. Instead of remember, it says observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded. And then he continues on, and six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh, is a, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you will not do any work, and he goes on again to mention your sons, your daughters, even your livestock, even the slaves and the servants. And then it gets interesting in verse 15. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, or on that basis, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here what God is doing. Here in the first, Exodus 20, we find out this Sabbath day is grounded in creation. And then in Deuteronomy 5, yet another commentary on Scripture as it points back to, as he has commanded, points back to this command and unfolds it further and says, not only is it granted in creation, but you were slaves. Slaves work all the time. There is no day off if you're a slave. This, they experience that oppression for 400 years, and the Lord delivers them out of that, out of slavery. They're not slaves anymore, at least not to Pharaoh. They are now slaves of God. Servants of the Almighty. And the Almighty is not a tyrant. He gives you a day of rest that is meant for his worship. This is, in creation, we see God's pattern for God's people. Work and rest. And here in Deuteronomy 5, we see God's promises for God's people. That they have been delivered out of slavery and have been delivered into rest. And we'll point further, as we'll see later on, that there is an ultimate rest that the people of God are going towards. And this is another picture of what is yet to come, even for us. But so now we we know we're supposed to rest, and we'll go back to Exodus 20. But what are we supposed to do with this rest? Is this just lay around? 
Or is there something else that we're supposed to do in this command? This is something that's worth noting. This is for all classes of people, including animals. Everyone was to be given a day off. This was rather a comprehensive command that we see. In fact, if we turn and look into Exodus 31, 16 and 17, there is a tremendous amount of weight that's put to this. Exodus 31, 16 and 17 says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. There's a whole new dimension to this. This is a covenant, a sign, if you will, of God's provision for his people. One could almost call it, but we can't, we could, but we could almost call it the sacrament of the Sabbath. Something that was meant as a sign for his people. A time of rest, acknowledging that he is the creator of the world, and he gets to determine what's done in it. And also that he is the redeemer of these people, and as such has charge over what they can and cannot do. Here is this worship. This was very comprehensive, as we could see in other other texts, like in Nehemiah thirteen fifteen, we can see it's a very comprehensive statement of what is allowed and what isn't. As Nehemiah unfolds for us, I can find it in my notes. There it is, thirteen fifteen. He says, "In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath." And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Here, this is, he goes on further that this is making and selling and doing all these things in verse 17. This is an evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day. Verse 18 says, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This was something God takes exceptionally seriously here in these passages. Not to buy, not to sell, not to do the ordinary works of things. This is profaning. And later shows that this was something that had brought about wrath onto his people, exiled for not keeping this commandment. There are other places that we could look at, and I'll just reference these texts to you. In Exodus 35, 1 through 3, we see the um, prohibition against, uh, against building fires and um, Amos 8, 5. It shows that this commandment actually goes all the way down to the heart. It says there that the the prophet is judging these people who are not selling things, but in their heart they're thinking, when is the Sabbath going to be over so we can get back to business? This isn't something that has just been externally kept, but it's something that has gone all the way down to the heart. If we're saying, all right, fine, I won't do any business on this day, that's not obeying the commandment. Other people don't see it that you're disobeying, so you got that advantage, but the Lord sees everything. He sees into the heart. 
So this is a very comprehensive command that he has given to his people. So what does this mean? What are we able to draw from this particular passage? Well, this is to say that the Lord controls the rhythms of our lives. And this is something that we will resist because we'd like to be masters of our own time. We'd like to be able to say, whip out our planners and say, here is what I'm going to do this week. And I'm going to use any amount of time that I want. This is forgetting who indeed it is that has created and has redeemed, isn't it? But we have to remember that this is for our good. Look with me, if you will, to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 13. It says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A tremendous promise. But what about the New Testament? We've been unfolding what this has meant for the people of the Old Testament. This is a day of holy rest. No work was to be done. Don't build any fires. Don't gather any sticks. Don't buy and sell. But what happens when we get to the New Testament? Is Jesus being a radical here? When we get to, say, Luke chapter 4, for instance. Or, excuse me, Luke chapter 6, which we read earlier. Here, Jesus is going around letting his disciples pluck heads of grain and thresh them with their hands, and the Pharisees are rather upset about that. Or when he goes and he heals this person on the Sabbath day. It would seem like that would be a work, and the Pharisees are upset about that. And it's a point I didn't realize until I got to seminary, but we rag on the Pharisees a little too hard. Because if you remember what happened from Nehemiah, when people broke the Sabbath, that's how they lost their country. That's how they got put into exile. So you can imagine the Pharisees are probably getting a little nervous when this guy who's really, really popular seems to be undoing Sabbath commands. It's worth noting their approach. But is Jesus a breaker of the Sabbath? And the answer is no. In fact, as DeYoung had put it, that the New Testament goes out of its way to show that he did not break any of those commandments. We see in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about that I have not come to destroy the law, but have come to fulfill it. In fact, we see wonderful Sabbath observance in Luke 4, 16, where it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Worship was a part of his life. This was something that he rightly did. But what we'll notice is in any times in which it seems like he was challenging the Sabbath, what he was actually doing was challenging the pharisaical commands around this Sabbath day. They wanted to try to make sure people wouldn't break the Sabbath, so they invented all these other laws that went around it, and they were exceedingly complex. In fact, I think if you can look in um, one of their 
ancient writings that they had something like 30 different categories of what was considered work and what wasn't and how you could break the Sabbath or not break the Sabbath, including down to what you did if you spit. It was if you just spit and left it there, it was okay. But if you worked it over with your sandal, then that was considered working the soil and hence work. You can see how granular these things got. They had missed what the intention of the Sabbath always was. And that's what we saw in Luke chapter 6. Here, Jesus doesn't look at this as the Sabbath as being a way to use God's law to break God's laws. If there was a chance to help the poor and the needy or to rescue the perishing or save those who were suffering, that one could not use the Sabbath as a means of getting away from that. Indeed, that this is what this was meant. And Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, or, or yes, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, he's not saying you're not here to come up with these, this elaborate set of rules and make this thing into more of a work, trying to figure out whether or not you are breaking it or not. And I think that's what we'll ultimately see when we get to Paul. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Here, Paul is speaking. Now we are post-cross. We're in a new covenant. What does this mean for the Sabbath? We're going to be looking at two texts of his, so be prepared to turn. Romans 14, verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here, what Paul is talking about in verse or chapter 14 is talking about people that are strong in faith and those that are weak in faith. He's mentioning that there are, there are, aspects, of, there are aspects of this that are up to the person's conscience, that we're not to judge so harshly. But it can be kind of confusing as to what he's talking about. What does he mean by one day better than another? Some have thought about, well, what he's talking about is this mixture of Jewish and pagan holidays that are together. He's not getting rid of any of the feasts or any of these other things. He's talking about this mixture of pagan holidays. I don't find that one particularly convincing because I don't know how you could observe a pagan holiday in honor of the Lord. And I think that this will be clearer as we turn to Colossians, where Paul picks this up again. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here, this, these wordings of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, we see this pattern show up many times in the Old Testament, talking about the annual feasts, so say Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and these sorts of things, the new moon festivals, monthly, that was celebrated, and then the Sabbaths, weekly. So now, are we saying here 
that the Sabbath is gone. What is it that Paul is talking about here? What I think he is mentioning is that the, the Sabbath, or the Jewish understanding of it as being the seventh day with all of those complex rules and the ceremonial aspects of those, that those are indeed taken away. I don't know how else to read Colossians chapter 2. Some have tried to say, well, we're talking about monthly Sabbaths here. It's like, I, I don't see that. So what I would think is that at least the, the Sabbaths, at least the Jewish understanding of it anyway, has passed. And it's not the, not the occasion for saying, okay, we get out our long list of things of what we can and can't do, but instead that this points to the freedom that Christ has brought and a freedom of rest. But if our first thought is, oh, good, I was afraid that this commandment would mean all-day church. I was afraid that this commandment meant that I would need to put aside all of my own things. This means, okay, good, as long as I've given my hour and a half to the Lord in the week, that I'm good with this command. If that's our approach to this, then we're probably not going to enjoy heaven very much. I don't mean to break it to you, but heaven is about worship. Heaven is about worshiping our God and resting in the work that he's done. And indeed, there are going to be things for us to do there, serving God and worshiping him. If something like that is is something we can only manage to do for an hour and a half per week, then we're not ready for heaven. Because it's going to be like that for all of eternity. And I think this is the approach that we should take to the Sabbath. What does this mean? So this wraps up our first point. We're freed to work and to rest. It's the pattern that he's given to us. And quickly, in our second point, that we are freed to worship. This is something that we have been freed to do. This should be something that we see as a delight. After all, this is the point of our lives, isn't it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, not to worship God and to endure Him forever. This is something that should be a joy. And this is, while this is not the Saturday Sabbath anymore, I think we can see a pattern in the New Testament that would indicate it's been moved to Sunday. Because what did the people do? Look in, I know we're going into lots of places in Scripture, but it's good. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 7, it talks about on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the second day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. No matter how long my sermons have gone, it's never been that long. But here we see this expectation, first day of the week, gathering together, breaking bread, Lord's Supper, and preaching. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 16.2, when Paul is talking about bringing a collection together. It says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside to store it up. This is taking of a, taking of a collection that Paul was going to come and collect and take to the poor. It was the expectation that this was going to be the continued pattern of the church. But why? What changed? What indeed? What changed was Christ. Christ lived the perfect life that we should have lived 
and died on the cross for all the sins that we committed and then went into the grave and then rose again on the first day of the week. What we see here, and this is from various commentators all pointed to this, is a repetition of what we've seen in Genesis and in Deuteronomy. When Jesus comes out of that grave, he recreates our world. All of a sudden, we are now no longer guilty people. We have been renewed. We have been recreated. And we have been redeemed. The same things that we saw in Genesis are repeated here in Christ's resurrection. This is a new world that we have been given. And as such, we can celebrate that. That's why it's called the Lord's Day. If you were with us in Sunday school, we saw in Revelation chapter 1 that that's when John had his vision. It was on the Lord's Day. Something that clearly there was some sort of set-aside time for the church. So while I think elaborate lists of do's and don'ts misses the mark, what I think does apply is recognizing what is it that's happened for us. What is it that we do? We're still called to worship. Substance of that has not been lost. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, telling us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is not Sabbath free-for-all, or Sabbath as we would like it, or as one commentator put it, mix Sabbath. Have Sabbath exactly the way that you would like. That's not our goal. Instead, I think our goal should be something like what Augustine had come with. His commentary on this, at least in Colossians 2, says, A person is not to be judged on their keeping of festivals or their food laws. On the other hand, he must receive, embrace, and observe without any reserve those commandments in the law which help to form the character of the faithful. And whatever progress he makes in them, he must not attribute to himself, but to the grace of God by Jesus Christ our Lord. What is, what is Augustine saying here? Almost called him Augie. What is he saying here? That we should not hesitate to take advantage of anything that we can to grow in our relationship with Christ. And this here, gathering together to be stirred up to love and good works, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, to hear the word being preached, to hear each other sing and to confess the faith together, this is going to grow you. And we neglect that at our own peril because we are commanded to do so. We're commanded to be here and to take advantage of this. But that's not an occasion for pride. Look what it says in that second bit. Any progress that we make, it's not because I'm a better Sabbath keeper than anybody else. No. Any progress that you make, that's the grace of God. But we use these things that he's given to us. These are gifts. I remember I saw a commercial. I forgot what the commercial was even for. But it's a guy who's clearly new to the gym. And he comes and his, his rather overweight steps up onto the, the scale and the number comes up. He has this look of determination. He sees he's going to lose weight. Steps off of the scale and makes one jogging lap around the gym. 
and exhausted, climbs back up onto the scale to be shown the same number. And he looks at it with confusion and whacks the side of the monitor as if this was going to give him the number that he actually should. Look at all this work that he's put in in this one lap around the gym. This is how we often approach our spiritual life. I'm going to take a lap around the gym. I'm going to pray over meals. I'm going to spend 10 minutes reading my Bible in the morning. And if I can make it to church, I'll make it to church. And then we wonder why we're spiritually flabby. And we wonder why. It's like, I don't feel really connected to Christ. Look at these these saints of old, how deep their relationship with God was, how deep their understanding was of theology and the work that Christ had done. Because they took advantage of what God gave to them. This is a command and a promise. This is a delightful thing. But oftentimes, as Riken had put it, if we're really honest, God would bore us. We would rather watch television. We would rather fit in one more thing at our job, knock out a few more emails before Monday rolls in. What does that say about how we actually view our relationship with God? Or the hearing that perhaps maybe the Sabbath doesn't apply anymore fills us with a little bit of hope because maybe we'll be able to do what we want to on Sunday. If that's our heart, that's not something that we can change on our own. That's something where we need the gospel. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and how he has delivered us out of a slavery far worse than what the Israelites experienced in Egypt. Our slavery to sin was going to take us to hell. And he's brought us out of that. We need to believe the psalmist when he says in Psalm 1611 that there are pleasures at your right hand forevermore. In the presence of God, there is joy. And we say, it's like, well, I don't, I don't really feel that. Well, perhaps we need to spend some Sabbaths. Try it out. This is not to say I'm not going to give, again, I'm not going to give this elaborate list. Yes, you can watch TV. No, you can't. You can take a nap. No, you can't. I think that misses the point. If this is something that draws you closer to God, then by all means, do it. Sometimes if you have been working diligently all six days, sometimes you need a nap. That's okay. Naps affirm that, this, that God is in control And the world can be without us for a little bit. When I'm not visiting or having lunch or something like that on a Sunday, sometimes I will lay back on my bed and we'll start up a gardening show and one or two of us will fall asleep. But the point of this is is to draw closer to Christ. Whatever it is that that's done. However you can do that, do that. Don't make Sunday something that you fit in, but make Sunday something that you fit the rest of your life around. What a different world this would be and how, what a different perception the world would have of Christians if on Sunday it was, no, we don't do these other things here on Sunday because we're here to worship God. 
And then when we're finished worshiping God, we come out, we do good things for other people because that's what Jesus did. And if every Sunday was a time in which people knew that they could count on the charity of Christians, because there'd be people that were out to do those things, what a witness that would have to the rest of the world. What might that be? So to sum everything up, how, what's our take-home message? You as a Christian, you have been freed up to use Sunday to get closer to God. That's a gift. It's not from an elaborate list of do's and don'ts, but a lavish outpouring of God's grace to you. Take advantage of this wonderful gift that you have been given, a command to rest. Don't turn Sunday into a minefield of things that you can and can't do. But instead, use Sunday to rejoice in your Savior. And I think by doing that, you will obey this fourth commandment in the way that it has been intended. This is a blessing. This is a good thing. And as we grow in Christ more and more, this will become more and more of a joyous thing. Sanctification, as I had heard one person put it, sometimes sanctification works like going to sleep. When you're going to sleep, if you stand up and have your eyes open, you're very unlikely to go to sleep. But by practicing the things that go to sleep, lying down and closing your eyes and breathing slowly, you'll find yourself going to sleep. And in a lot the same way, when we're obeying God's commands, does it feel natural? No, not usually. We're sinful people. Those things have to be peeled off. But as we practice those things, we'll find ourselves becoming holier and holier. And those things that we used to think were a massive inconvenience of our own time turned out to be the most treasured parts of our entire week. That if anything, we just regret we haven't spent more time in this way that he's given to us. Sunday is a gift. It points to the gift that we have been given in Christ. And ultimately points to the rest in which we are all going to. Sunday is worship practice. For the times in which we will get to spend with all of eternity in the presence of God and joy forever. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. I pray that you would use this passage to draw us closer to you. Not to look at this as something where we can clobber other people over the head with. Or something that we turn into a man-made list of things to do and don't. But to turn this into an opportunity to get as close to you as we possibly can. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.